Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest on this episode is none other than the 1987 World 500cc motorcycle champion, Wayne Gardner. In part one, we covered a range of his four-wheel career. In this one, part two, we'll talk about Bathurst 2002 and the shunt with Stone Brothers Racing that took him out of his final Bathurst 1000 start before he even made it. His Formula One test drive with Lotus in 1993 and the subsequent meeting that it led to with Bernie Eccleston. He'll challenge the National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions that we throw at him and also the Motor Focus Top 10 shootout. Now we did this chat down the phone line, Wayne in Monaco, myself in the V8 Sleuth office in Melbourne. Uh, so the audio is still pretty good though, considering we are worlds apart in this current uh, COVID-19 situation. Of course, we couldn't exactly jump on a plane and go and do an interview in person. So this was the next best thing, the stories of the star. Hope you enjoyed the content here. Here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Part two of Wayne Gardner on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Timken. When you closed the V8 team, Wayne, did yeah. the phone ring from any other V8 teams offering you a, a drive with them or a co-drive or, or something else? Yes, it did. Uh, I was offered some other teams to come and join them. Uh, I and then always at Bathurst, I get offered to come and do the long, long, uh, long drive, long longevity drives. Uh, I, I was offered them for many years to come, but you know, if it wasn't the right team and it wasn't the right thing, I thought, what's the point? I'm going back to the WGR days when we didn't have the right equipment, you know. So. I just went, nah, you know, I don't want to do that. I just held my head high and went and did other stuff that's far more exciting. You know, I, I, I enjoy Bathurst and, and I loved it. I did love Bathurst, except when I crashed when we had no brakes um, in practice at uh, Bathurst with the, with, um, with the Stone Brothers car. Um, what happened there was I hit the wall because as I got into the car, my overalls hit the lever at the front of the seat that turned the brake bias off. Mm. And it's for bleeding the brake. The brake when they come in to change brake pads, my the leg of my tra- of my suit dragged the lever across, turned the brake valve off, so I had no brakes. I went up mountain straight there, come to the first turner, put my foot to the floor to braze, you know, to, to slow it down, but no brakes. Went straight to the floor. I pumped it and pumped it. But I couldn't make it. Downshifted, nearly made it, but hit the wall and then flicked me off across the other side of the road. But I absolutely had not one ounce of any brake. It was it hit the bypass valve, you know, so not wasn't my fault. But that was your last time in a V eight supercar. It was your last run at Bathurst. Was that a case where you just went, I've got other stuff to do, that's me done, or the the phone stopped ringing or it's a bit of a sad way for your, your decade uh, or so V eight racing no, to stop. I got off I got offered to come back after that, but uh, you know that's to be honest, that scared me a bit that crash because you go up Mountain Straight, flat and six, and then you come to, you know, that fast right there. And uh, when the pedal goes, you got to brake. You got to brake reasonably hard uh, and shift it back to four. And uh, I went straight to the pedal of the floor. Nothing. Not, not even. Not. 
not even a handbrake, not even anything. But I just went straight in there at full pelt at sixth gear. And I've gone, fuck, what am I going to do now? And I, I just scared the, the fuck out of me, to be honest. Um, and I was just looking for a road. Where am I going to find thing? I'm not going to make it. And I, I nearly made it. But uh, luckily it came around sideways, hit the back of the, hit the wall because I was turning and turning trying to get there. It got sideways. I hit the wall and it just and it catapulted me straight across the other side, straight into the wall, virtually head on, and it and knocked me out. And uh, I was, uh, luckily I was okay. Um, they're pretty strong cars, but the amount of impact kind of really shocked me. Mm. It was my first big crash that I've had. I've had little crashes, you know, getting pushed off or touching a wall or involved in an accident with another car, but certainly not at that high speed, you know. It's you know near on probably 280 kilometers an hour up that hill. Uh, and you can imagine going flat out and six gear into that turn and having not one ounce of braking because the brake bias, the brake valve release was gone on. It was pretty scary, you know, and uh, uh, it, uh, I got concussed. It scared the shit out of me, and um, I went, well, I'm not sure if I want to do that again, you know. So then I started to realise that if I'm going to do stuff, I'd rather get to it in Europe, you know, and in Japan and Europe. So, and I wasn't enjoying the lifestyle back home in Australia. I wasn't enjoying the the, the shit fight I'd been through from the, the V8 things. And, you know, I, I had a different vision in my life. Plus, my kids were growing up and they wanted to go and start racing. So I went, you know what, it's probably time to stop. And um, I finished off in Japan. Um, I raced on to there to 2002. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, 2002 or 2000? 2000, 2000. Uh, no, 2002. And, um, and then I got asked to come back again. They wanted to for me to stay on, but my kids were growing up, wanted to go and start bike riding, so I decided to go and help them and have a bit more easy time, so, uh, and then run businesses, and then that's what I'm doing as today. And that's going to be another of the questions I was going to drop at you. A lot of our listeners and followers who follow what we do here in Australia and the, the local motor racing scene, they, they probably see and hear a bit of you here and there. They obviously keep in touch with Remy's uh, Motorcycle Racing. What are, what are you doing day-to-day? What is a, a day in the life of, of Wayne Gardner these days? Well, I've got several businesses now, um, and uh, I've got uh, Remy and Luca. I mean, they're my priorities, is my kids. Um, I've got divorced uh, seven years ago, and, uh, single, and, uh, you know, following my kids' dreams, helping them. Um, they've left home, all of them, both of them. Um, Luke is back in Australia working in construction and Remy's racing and lives in Spain and Barcelona. Uh, and I go and visit him and hang out with him and do his thing. Um, I'm involved in the World GP Bike Legends, our classic weekend event that we do across Europe. And um, that's one of my businesses. And um, I do property development. I've got a large-scale operation happening right now um, in Wollongong. Um, it's called Blamby Commercial Centre. I'm building um, I'm building 87 warehouses down there, so it's a large scale product, and that's um, currently under build right now, which is exciting. My son Luca, I think, will be working on that a little bit later this year, uh, and I'm about to launch something very interesting towards this end of this year that. It's a secret at this point, um, but it's uh, a very big global business. 
So um, something new is coming, and I can't tell you what it is. I hate when people do that. That's such a tease. All right, we'll keep an ear and an eye out for later in the year and see what you come up with, and we can always go, ah, that's what he was talking about. You'll see it. It's um, it's a big business. It's a large, 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 large business, you know. So, uh, And all those things have got me covered for all my time. Um, but predominantly, uh, you know, I want to hang out with my kids and do stuff with them and uh, be with dad, most importantly. And then the business is... Uh, uh, my other children, you know, so that's, but I'm very focused on business and um, having a good time in life, to be honest. I actually couldn't be happier. Uh, good man. Glad to hear it. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about you too that probably gets overlooked and forgotten, particularly when people talk Wayne Gardner and car racing, they just think of the, the V8s and, and Bathurst and stuff like that, but you drove a Formula One Lotus yeah. in the UK in 93 and was there an offer that you could have raced that car again if you, you know, if you brought some money along? Well, if you remember, when I drove the Formula Ford uh, in Adelaide, um, I, was, I was fast and, and was obviously in there for a podium place until I ended up in the kitty litter. Um, uh, Peter, was it Peter Collins, I think? He was the boss of uh, Lotus. Oh, Peter, Peter War. Um, Peter, was it? Okay, one of them. I thought it was Colin. Okay. And so he came up to me that weekend and said, <laughs> would you like to have a drive of our Formula One car um, some, um, in, a, in a display lap or two? And I went, <laughs> that's a silly question. And I said, sure. So I don't know if you've ever seen photos, but I'm driving around there with an open face helmet um, to do a display lap in the Lotus. And I went around there pretty fast. I had an open face helmet on, which is unusual. And um, did some laps way to the crowd, but I got stuck into it. And, and I, I, I came back and said, fuck, you're fast. And I went, yeah, I know, I loved it. And they said, and and he said, Pete said to me, okay, would you like to have a test? And I went, a proper test? And I went, yeah, that would be great. He said, back in England. So uh, after there, I went back to Europe where I was living in Monaco and uh, they invited me over to a test at Senaton with Herbert. So I went over there and tested for a day, a complete day for myself. Uh, and they turned the RPM down 500 RPM and had the shift and everything and a whole lot. And um, I went and spent the day there, and I got within, I got within about a second or a second and a half or something of, of Herbert, um, which was incredibly fast. They went, wow. So they were considering wanting me in Formula One. And so they said, but we're going to need sponsorship and help and support. We suggest you go and see Bernie Eccleston. And I went, oh, really? And I said, I've met him a couple of times. And they went, why not? So I... I contacted Bernie Eccleston, and and um, he was really keen to get me into Formula One. So I went to his offices in London, and um, as you can see, I mixed with the big boys. <laughs> <laughs> so so I went and visited him, and he thought it was a great idea. And he said, "But it's going to need a team and um, sponsorship. And have you got any sponsorship to bring?" And I said, "No, not really. You know, I could probably go and try, um, you know, Coca Cola or something like that." And and you know, his eyes went up and he was interested. And then he said, look, I'll get back to you. And he went and started to shop around with teams and people and so on and maybe get me into a test team or a proper test with a good team, whatever. But at that time, um, it was all about what money you can bring to the teams. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't find, you know, the million dollars, millions of, millions of dollars, sorry, not millions, millions of dollars in sponsorship to bring with me into the team. But Bernie was generally interested to get me in there, and I've stayed in touch with Bernie for many years now since then. 
And um, because he's an old bike fan as well, if you know a bit of his history. So uh, we tried and we tried, but in the end of the day, I knew it wasn't going to happen um, because I couldn't find the stupid money. I didn't have rich parents. Um, you know, my dad's a truck driver and, uh, and my mum uh, worked in cafes, you know, as a, as a, as a waitress. So uh, no matter how many Coca-Colas I'd had, I didn't have enough to get myself into Formula One. However, I've also driven, uh, that test went really well. Then I got asked by Honda to come and visit them one day and have a test in all their cars and their bikes, all the parts, all the equipment that they have from their museums. And I tested then in the big oval, I did the, you know, the, the Honda, was it Williams car or one of those cars? It was the Formula One. Um, I drove that around there. Um, I actually did the complete lap in the, in the, that car, flat out. I never lifted, lifted the throttle. It was really hard to do because it was freezing cold and I nearly spun out and going out of the pit. But I did, uh, I did a few laps around there with an absolutely pin, never got off flat and thick, right around that oval around there. And that was pretty scary, but it was great fun doing it. So I've driven Formula One cars and, you know, high speed vehicles for a long time. And, um, but you know, that was only for a day thing with Honda. I get to drive their sports car, the GT car. I got to drive their, all the bikes, you know, the NSRs, the, all the bikes that I raced in the past. So it was a day uh, uh, on Honda's track. Um, and the track was there for me, and there was a couple of other Japanese drivers and journalists there watching the story and so on. But but I managed to do a, a you know three hundred over three hundred kilometers an hour oval around there in their cars, in their fun cars, their older ones, but still wide open. You know, it was good fun, <laughs> pushing the limits with my hair on fire. <laughs> so is that uh, Motegi being the oval track? That's at Motegi, correct, Motegi, yep. yeah. Yeah, cool. Now that's... So, as you can see, I've driven lots and lots of F1 cars and a variety of things, and GTs and Le Mans and sports, and that, but probably my favourite car out of all those, um, it was because I was competitive in the GT car, you know, to get into a F1 team and, you know, to make the transition across, for example, like Rossi trying to go into Formula 1, uh, now it's impossible. It's impossible, and it's never going to happen um, because you don't have that young grading of uh, car racing at such a young age. Yes, you bring a lot of skills from the bike, but you need that really fine-tuning, ultimate stuff from the from the cars. You have to make the transition at a very early age, mm. not when you're 40 or 30-something and 40 years of age. It's, it's too late because mm. the Formula 1 is such a high level now, and um, you know, it's never going to happen, and I know Rossi would never go to Formula One, and even though he's been tempted and offered, but he knows as well as I do, it'll never work because he doesn't have the the history with on four wheels. Um, I was lucky; I've been one of probably you know two, three, or four guys in the whole world that that made that have adapted to four wheels. But there's not many of us, you know. You're talking about thirties, you're talking about Johnny Chicotto. There's not many of us that have made the transaction. There's probably only three, four of us, you know, that it's made and made it successful. A lot of guys have tried to make the transaction um, or transition, sorry, over to uh, four wheels, but it's not easy. Um, it's easy to do the first part, but the last two tenths, half a second, two tenths, three tenths is very hard to find when you don't have that history. But fortunately, um, I had the skills and I had the passion and the commitment to to make it, you know, and I, I, was, a, I was a quick driver in the end, but Again, I fulfilled that dream, and um, then my kids come along and wanted me to help them. So 
and then businesses took off after the kids, the kids' dream, you know, yeah. and then the square am. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned history then, and one of the organisations that we're heavily involved with with our show and our website is the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama Bathurst, which for our listeners who have been there, at the moment it's currently closed, sadly, due to the coronavirus situation. But when it gets open again down the track, uh, anyone who's passing through country New South Wales, there's, there's a cool amount of stuff in there. And I remembered as I was prepping the notes today for our chat that your world championship bike is in a glass case in the museum. And I think you own that, don't you? Did you end up retaining that? Yes. That's mine, yes. That's my property. Uh, it's in my case. Um, they wanted it up there. Uh, I've got bikes and equipment spread all over the world now. Um, uh, but, yeah, I've got several bikes up there. I've got my Morawaki. I've got my uh, super, uh, uh, super motard bike. That bike actually has won the world title in motocross with Eric Abord. Um I've... That's a world. It's a factory uh, um, 500 motocross bike that won the world championship. Uh, I've got lots of toys everywhere, you know, in, in Wollongong, in some museums and um, various places all over. You know, I've got stuff, equipment, helmets, whatever. But um, I'm actually starting to rally it all, start together. At some point, um, I will be taking all that stuff back to my own museum um, at a certain time, but I'm just not sure about when and how and the location. But it's certainly a, a little bit of an idea of mine at the moment that I'm putting together for because now I don't race anymore and, um, you know, I'm building a museum of my history but, but also, you know, my, my son as well. So we're collecting as much uh, memorabilia as possible across yeah. the, the, the garden and name, the brand. I love the history of all this stuff and – we spoke to Mark Webber last year in the podcast, and he owns one of his old Red Bull Formula One cars that he picked out as uh, one that he'd like to do. But back in the day, was it were you thinking ahead in terms of putting in a contract, I get one of my bikes if I win the championship, or I get to keep this, or I get to have that? Or was it a case that you, you went backwards in the years afterwards and, and went back and, and got it? How did that all work? No, that was something that I wanted. Uh, I always asked for bikes every year. Um, I had heard of it, other riders doing it, and I think that's a good idea. And uh, and at the time, my boss at Honda, HRC, was Mr. Aguma. And I was very, very good friends with Aguma-san, and, um, and I kept pushing him and pushing him, and he pulled his hair out, and eventually he made it happen for me. So um, I've had many people wanting that bike, and went for people to pay handsomely for it. But it's 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 my history, um, it's my and it's my kids' product. You know, now it's their, their it's my history and it's it's for a museum and it's for them. Mm. Um, they'll be obviously at some point when I build my own museum. Um, location question mark I don't know, and uh, it'll be in Australia somewhere, possibly Wollongong. Um, I don't know just yet. Uh, I'm in the business of building stuff and a developer. So maybe that's another project on my plate down the track. But uh, um, no, I've tried to hang on to as much as I could financially, as much as I could. Um, you know, in the beginning of days of your career, you you go and do something, and it's a history making piece. But unfortunately, you don't have the money to hang on to it. So you sell that to move up to the next level in racing, or buy the next set of leathers, or whatever it takes. So it's um, it, it, it's part of the process. But however, you know. 
since the social media platforms are around, I'm starting to find out where a lot of my old stuff is. So <laughs> who knows what's going to happen in the future. But it's uh, when they released my film, you know, the, the movie Wayne, and um, it, which has been a huge success around the world. And uh, all of a sudden, we, I started then seeing my Castrol 6-hour bike turn up at the cinema opening at the red carpet night and, uh, and NSRs and so there's bits and pieces of it everywhere. So who knows, if I have a museum, one day I might be able to go and, you know, get all these vehicles or history back into one place, you know. That's, uh, but that's, that's another day, another time at the moment. You know, now I'm just focused on business and my kids. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and recognize their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines? Some standing as tall as 260 meters, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 meters in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts, and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. One of the other things we do, Wayne, is we have fans ask questions, and it's part of what we call our uh, National Motor Racing sure. Museum Couch Racer Questions. The couch racers get to ask uh, their yep. questions, so I might zip through them quickly. Uh, Revhead.me off Instagram, I don't think that's his real name, uh, says, I'd love to know about the road car range, the WGR road car Commodores that you had there for a little while. What was the, the, the idea behind it, and why didn't it kick on for longer? Well, that happened purely because... Um Holden stopped sponsorship, and we're, I was trying to find sponsorship, and I had Thompson out there running around like a madman um, with his head cut off, and uh, uh, he was struggling with it. So I then tried to think up other ways of, of um, creating an income for the team. And uh, and I had people asking, I thought, can we buy your rear wing? Can we buy this? Can we buy that? All the parts for our race cars. So I started saying, well, then I noticed a company that was making some pretty cool stuff in Sydney, and I went and chatted to them and said, I've got this idea. Would you be interested in doing it and supplying us um, with some modifications and make it you know, a little special and make it into a WGR, a, a replica parts, you know? And they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So from there, we gathered up wheels and body, body components and engine parts and in, um, uh, electronics and seats and da-da-da-da-da off the back of the team and then we started making some parts and then we started, then we thought, oh, I'll build myself a car and everyone goes, wow, that's cool, can I have one? And then it went from there and then, but then Holden and then Crennan come along and stopped that as well. So uh, that that didn't end in, <laughs> ended in tears as well. So besides them stopping my racing career by, by supporting us, uh, by stopping Bridgestone supporting us with hires, uh, and we were prepared to pay for them. As I said, that wasn't the issue. Um, and then, of course, uh, Holden didn't care about the the special parts thing. But when 
Crennan started getting nervous about HRT, thinking that we we're going to become a competitor against them. So then they got Holden then to come down and crush us with that, with that as well. So uh, I haven't had too many happy stories about Australia, you know, particularly in business and racing and so on. And it's been good to go home, but wow, I, I think a bit. I, I think everyone's quite small-minded when it comes all to that. I mean, you know, it's all about who's going to be the biggest fish in a small pond. And uh, uh, I see things a little differently. And um, and when the chance comes to I sold out of the, the, the WGR business, and in fact, there's a lot of cars. I mean, we were building lots of cars and selling them, and it was good fun, and it was great to see. And now I have so many people following me up wanting to buy parts and badges and <laughs> bits and pieces from it, and that I, I, I don't have a lot of that now. And I appreciate their commitment to it, and I am trying to help people with some badging and, and some logos and some history on it all, but it's all very limited now, and a lot of it's in my warehouse. And um, under lock and key, and I, I live in Europe, so I'm kind of bound by what, how much I can help people. However, I'm very proud to see that these pieces, or these vehicles, two wheels and four wheels, have become collector's items and uh, and, and a piece of history. Because um, there's uh, there's going to be some more history making stuff coming this year, later this year. So you'll you'll be amazed what the next stage is in my life and. Um, and um, what we've been making or producing, you know. So um, it's it, it was a good it was a good stage. It was I learned a lot from all those processes, you know. And um, you know, if you can fight hard in Australia, you then take all those ideas and take it to a world platform, and it's a whole lot easier. And you don't have the 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 big fish in the small pond story, you know what I mean? And and a lot of the the Aussie knockers, you know. And uh, it's kind of nice to just disappear and do it on a larger scale now. Yeah. Um, Dave's uh, Dave Fowler, I hope I've said Dave's surname correctly there from Facebook, he says, oh, this is an interesting one. You might not have known of this. Is it true that your boys at WGR working on the cars at Wetherill Park, which is the suburb where the team was, would on occasions give them a bit yeah. of a shakedown along Newton Road? True or false? Uh, I think they would, yes. I think it wasn't a shakedown. I think they were, I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, I really, uh, I was the only businessman with constant chasing money and wearing, you know, the business hat. Um, yeah, look, I had one. I had a, a one or two of the things, and um, that was good. And I had evaluated, and those guys would build them, and um, obviously they would take them for a run. Um, I never received any speeding tickets. I don't really know what happened, if they got in trouble or not, but uh, I know that there was no accidents, thank God, and that was the most important thing. Um, and if it was their speeding tickets, it's their license, you know. So, but I'm sure they did give them a run along Newton Road and uh, Weatherall Park. Yeah, that was um, that was the start of my property um, development stuff out there because I bought that and developed that warehouse out there as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was probably true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Christopher Darling, he asks. Did it piss you off being labelled Captain Chaos? And did you feel like trouble followed you everywhere on the racetrack? We kind of covered the second bit, but the, the Captain Chaos tag was one that popped up in the HRT era and it was pretty hard to shake that one. Once they stuck it to you, it's pretty hard to unshake it. Yeah, that was that was created by, um, uh, what's his name, Pem- Pemberton? Uh, uh, <laughs> Tim Pemberton, plastic. Uh, Tim Pemberton, Tim Pemberton. Yeah, that was created by him and his, his uh, sarcastic ways. Uh, Tim was a good guy, but he came up with all stupid terms. Um, he started that and printed it, and then that was kind of stuck. 
Uh, I think it was an unfair term because, as I just said to you, um, most of the people, uh, fans, and and weren't aware of the difficulties that we had financially in the team and, of course, from the tyres, you know, so and the inexperience. So, you know, I was supposed to – people expected me to leave Grand Prix bikes at a world level and come and start winning touring cars straight away. It's not quite the course, in, and that's how it's done. Um, however, um, you know, and then there were a number of people wanted to prove me wrong and um, Dick Johnson and people like that that uh, – I don't know, they had this sort of chip on their shoulder that they wanted to uh, put me in my place, you know. So, But anyway, I didn't care. I just learned from it. Um, and, um, yeah, it was good fun. Good fun. And does, does it bother me? No, not really now. Couldn't care less. You know, it was all part of that, that Australian Oka industry knocking everybody, you know what I mean? Instead of putting these heroes on a pedestal and trying to help them and, and, and to do a lot for the show, and for the championship, they all they wanted to do was put me in back into the box all the time. So, no, I kind of see it as uh, as acknowledgement that I was in there annoying them and having a good time. Next question is our Castrol question of the week, and it's from uh, Simon Thomas, who asked something that I'd forgotten all about. He says, I seem to remember Wayne testing a NASCAR at the Calder Park Thunderdome at some point. What was his thoughts and memories? But if I remember correctly, you didn't just test, you actually raced, and... Started at the back of the grid, and I think you Correct. finished in the top three in the one Thunderdome race that you did. How yep. did that all come to be? Uh, because I was at the point, I think that's around um, 84 was, or 5. It, or it was, I can tell you when it was, it was late in 93. So late in the, the year of the, the HRT. 93, sorry, not 80. Yeah, yeah 93. I think, I, yeah, that came about... Um, uh, because I wasn't sure what to do, and that was before I signed up with uh, HRT or something at the '93. And um, they said, "Oh, you want to come and have a drive of this?" Because I'd driven sprint cars, I drove had NASCAR cars, as you said. And I went down there and I went, "I'm not sure I'm going to like this, but I'm going to try it." And uh, I went out into the race, and you're right, I started back the field and I came through, and I actually possibly could have won the thing. Um, I was coming through fast. And then another driver, um, Byers, I think his name was, or something like that, he punted me off. And I spun when I was coming through. These guys weren't fast. I mean, what can be so difficult about going around left-handers the whole time? And you don't change gear. You're in top gear the whole time. <laughs> and all you do is brush the brake with your with your left foot brake, you know? So um, with little experience, came through the field and was challenging. And, I, and, I, and one of the buys spun me off because I was catching the leaders, and I spun out. Then I had to come and join the end of the field, and then I came back through again and finished third. So, uh, you know, if I had um, not been pushed off by Byers, uh, who was, again, another one of these Dick Johnson stories, you know, wanting to push you off and show you, teach you a trick or two, um, uh, I probably would have won the thing, you know. So, again, it's not the speed is the challenge. It's the, it's the experience you have to gain, how to deal with these, these incidences, you know, so it's, it, I felt it was good and I, I thought it was fun, but it was a little bit boring just going around left-hand turns all the time, you know, there's not a lot of driver experience or driver talent needed for that, um, so I went, no, that's not for me, you know, that's, because uh, I realised that I could probably go really well or even win in no time and that's kind of 
not challenging enough. I wanted to go and do something that goes around right-hand turns, left-hand turns, and has a bit more fun to it and a bit more, you know, precision to it, you know? So, um, no, so no, I turned my back on that, but it was fun trying. It's a bit like sprint cars as well, you know? I tried that. I was fast, um, but a couple of times, the one time the car caught fire because it burst the fuel line in the cockpit of, of methanol, and um, it caught fire from the exhaust out the side, and I was swimming in in a pool of of methanol, methanol in the in the pit in the cockpit, and I was just freezing cold from it, and I was absolutely shitting myself. And if that caught fire, I wouldn't be sitting here telling this story. So uh, that did my head in after that, and I went, you know what? These sprint cars are fun. They got a lot of power, and they're hard to drive. But again, you're driving in a different condition all the time. The clay can be sticky, it can be loose, it can be this, it can be that. And again, that's one of those experience things you've got to gain. However, I didn't see myself going round, round, round circles in left-hand turns, a bit like um, a bit like the NASCAR stuff. And then I thought, well, that's nice and it's fun and great, great power-to-weight ratio, but nah, a little boring. It's not for me. So I left that too. Well, you can't say that you haven't had a go at just about everything that's got four or two wheels, but uh, that was a really good question. I, I'd forgotten about the NASCAR stuff, so to Simon Thomas, thanks for sending that one in. That was our question of the week, thanks to Castrol. Of course, Castrol's more than just, just oil, it's liquid engineering. I'm doing the plug here, Wayne. I'll get through it fast. Castrol provides the oils, fluids, and lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, and every industry, and follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive comps, and much, much more. And I know you've had a, a Castrol association over the years, the, the Castrol six-hour at Amaru, and I think Castrol were on the HRT cars when you drove there, and you've had a bit of a tight with Castrol over yeah. the years as well. And it was a Castrol oh, Lotus as well. Castrol, that's right. Castrol's been a long supporter of uh, my career from the early days, you know, as you say, from the six-hour days right through to now. They've got a great product. Um, a worthy product to recommend to anybody, you know. So, um, but unfortunately for Castrol, there's a lot of comp- competition out there, a bit like motor racing, you know. So, uh, and um, there's a lot of great brands around the world. But however, um, Castrol's one that stands there for a long time, and you know you're buying you're buying quality and longevity with that. So you know your hand, you know your car or your vehicles in the best hands um, using Castrol oils. You've nailed it. You're good at this. I think you've got a career in motor racing ahead of you. Uh, you've got all the bits covered. That's that's impressive. That's good. <laughs> hey, another thing I wanted to quickly ask you, we'll wrap it up very soon. Really appreciate your time. Uh, one of the races that stands mm. out to me, and just to quickly touch on the bikes, I mean, I'm, I'm much more of a, a car racing aficionado, but I have a a respect and a, yeah. and a following for the bike racing. And I remember as a kid tuning into that amazing race at Phillip Island in 89 when the World Championship went down there and they – they rebuilt the circuit, and and you won that race. Yeah. And of course, it was so heavily featured in the in the movie a couple of years ago, which brought back a, a lot of amazing memories. Yeah, I love to know where the old stuff goes. Do you know where the '89 Phillip Island winning bike is? Uh, well, it's in in Motegi, in um the in the in the Honda's Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, they they that's '89 because I've got '87 the World Championship. Mm-hmm. But those bikes, I wanted that bike, but again, they were reluctant. An 89 bike um, would be hard to find um, because that was the one with the modified chassis during the year and we cut and hacked it. There's a long, long story about that mm-hmm. um, in history uh, behind Honda and myself. Uh, and that basically that bike was a, a copy of the Suzuki, to be honest. Which is uh, quite an amazing story. How all that evolved um, to what it was. It, 
when I finished at 92, that bike was amazing. And the 89 bike was the start of the process. And um, we all knew Honda had the best engine out there, but certainly not the best chassis. So, so long story short, I had privy to the Suzuki, Schwanzer Suzuki, next to my motor home one day uh, in 88. And, and I showed Honda that because it was a really hot day. And I had mirrored windows in my motor home and they sat there all day photographing it. And then they blew it up on the... On the, in, in HRC and measured everything and then they come back and I said, tell me what it is. And they come out and they went, wow, different theory, different ideas. I said, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And they went, uh, nothing. I said, no, 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 no. You're not doing that. I said, I want you to tell me what the changes are, what the differences are and make, make some modifications and let's start trying it. And they did and that's when the, the Honda started making progress over the next three, four years. And to the point where in, in 92, the thing was unbeatable um, after the Big Bang engine, which is another thing that I wanted when we were Grand Prix racing was this more tractable engine, you know, the top power is nice, but too hard to ride. And once we did that, the crashes stopped and the grip got better. And um, so so the bike from 92 onwards was basically not changed very little after that. And that's how it all got to that point from, from me requesting and asking and finding information out. And that's how we improved it. Uh, people need to watch where they park their bikes next to motorhomes. It's a it's a trap for young players, I would have thought. But uh, uh, well, yeah. Now these days they don't have they don't have their bikes in their tents anymore no. on the side of the of the bus, uh, the garages. So all those days are gone. But um, quite interesting. However, I take great interest in chassis and development, and I know a lot about this because I did many, 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 many ideas and test sessions and so on. And um, uh, and that's what's sort of fueling me forward in other other ideas, you know. So uh, I love all that stuff. It's very interesting, you know. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, you've done in your time plenty of top 10 shootouts at Bathurst in, in the V8s. We have a top 10 shootout on this show. It's sponsored by Motor Focus, who's your home of quality scale models. They stock all the big brands of model cars. There's probably a few old Coke car models in among their range as well. You go to their uh, website, motorfocus.com.au, or pop in and see them at their at their store, Unit 9, number 1, Stockwell Place in Archerfield, Queensland. Uh, we do – basically, it's a fancy form of word association. I'll run through 10 things. You give me the first word or two that comes into your brain. Sound like a plan? Okay. All right. Phillip Island. Um, is without a doubt 89 uh, and 90 my my amazing win in the second year I mean my first one was the nicest so without a doubt Phillip Island uh, GP 500 race winning winning that's the word there you go um, the word or, uh, I'll let you have two or three words it's hard to do in one word Eddie Lawson uh, tough tough guy uh, Mr. Cool tough guy um, respect. Yep. Um, uh, Neil Crompton. This could go anywhere. <laughs> uh, good mate and professional. Yep. Agree. Uh, Thomas Mazira. Great guy. Um, and Spark. Yep. Uh, Suzuka. Suzuka, uh, fans. They always pack in there. Winning. Yep, yep. Yeah, fans, winning, and history. Yeah, true. Uh, Wollongong. Home. I thought you might say Family that. and business. 
Yeah. I thought you might Home, family, and business. Yep. Uh, Bathurst. Uh, dreams. Yep, yep. When fulfillment. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Dreams, fulfillment, and um, respect. Yeah, true. If you don't respect that place, you're in a you're in a world of hurt when you're uh, trying to do a lap time. Uh, a couple more okay. to go. We're nearly there. I know this is a bit tricky. It's a little bit hard. We've put you on the spot with it. Uh, Bradley Jones. <laughs> uh, clown. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, Alan Gow said idiot. So. Um, uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, it's interesting. I talked to Bradley last year. He was a, our guest at the, the museum at Bathurst. We do a talk night on the Thursday night of the 1000 week, and he said that you guys ended up getting on quite well, but at the start you, you probably didn't get along. Is that is that the case from your side of things? Yeah, that's, that's great. I, 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 it's difficult to understand Bradley, you know? He is from Albury uh, after you whether, all. Whether or not, well, yeah, whether he's, he's, he's toying around and being a clown is that part of a master plan or is that that he's really smart or he's completely stupid? And that was what I was trying to understand him. And um, I found the conclusion eventually. So, uh, but good guy. I, I, I have a lot of respect for him. He's funny. He's a good time, but he's a clown. <laughs> uh, a couple more to go. We're nearly finished. Uh, Wally Story. We mentioned him earlier, but what's the word that springs to mind with Wally? Uh, commitment. Yep. Uh, passionate. And um, yeah, that's two words. You've you've, uh, you've, you've ticked in, the box in 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 another in in another world. <laughs> He's an engineer. They all are, mate. Uh, and just finally, NSR five NSR five hundred. Aggressive, fast, um, respect. Yep. No, done well. There you go. So that was a little bit difficult. We threw that one on you and didn't give you the the heads up that that was going to come along. Wayne, um, we've loved watching you race on two and four wheels. Um, it's great to sit down and, and have a chat about some of the things. I know we've probably got a million other things that we could talk about. Maybe we can do it again another time. But on behalf of all of our listeners and everyone here in Australia, thanks so much for your contribution, not just to two wheels but four wheels. And it's been good fun to cover off some topics that probably haven't been in the, the front of your brain in recent times. So thanks again. No, it hasn't. It's been actually interesting walking down memory lane with this, uh, Aaron. I didn't give it any thought, and the the, the the stories I told you are exactly on the sparing moment. But um, I've got some good memories from the car racing world. I think it's fun. I told you it's uh, it's been part of the challenges, and you know, out of everything bad, there's a good side. So you've got to understand that, and that's in everything that I. And I told my son that. I told my both my sons that. So, you know, you take the good and you, you leave the bad and um, you move on forward to greener pastures. So it's all part of my life and part of the journey and I satisfied my curiosity. And now I look back and go, well, that was fun. You know what I mean? So I don't have any problem with anybody, you know, and I, I miss Australia a lot, but I live in Europe and I'll be over here probably for the rest of my life living. And um, But I'll come back and have visits back every year to my family and to Phillip Island and um, saw that history but it's great communicating and um, but it's good to be over here as well you know what I mean so I look forward to seeing everybody back in Australia I'll be back actually back in Australia in September October because the the first stage of my building um, uh, large-scale building process first 24 units will be for sale so we're selling all those off and I'll be handing over the keys to all the people there. So, uh, and then on to the next stage. So, I've got lots of things that keep me occupied. 
Good stuff, mate. Great to catch up with you, and uh, we'll keep an ear and an eye out for that big announcement that you've got a, a bit later on in the year, and we'll we'll go see what else we can find for that museum of yours. All the best. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Look forward to it. Thank you, mate. There you have it, Wayne Gardner, part two complete of our podcast chat. It was great to catch up with him and great to spend so much time running back through the era of his four-wheel career and talk about some of the topics that he probably hasn't thought too much about in, in recent times. It was really great to sit down and have a chat. Of course, keep following us here on V8 Sleuth. Our website's doing record numbers with more and more content. Our online bookshop is going crazy as well. We've just released the new Dick Johnson Racing Cars history book. 3,000 copies, all signed by Dick Johnson, 400 pages, hardcover, limited edition, with 40 years of the team's cars all documented. It is a must-have. We've got a pile of other cool stuff, prints from Peter Hughes, magazines, books. It's a place, if you're a motorsport fan, you've got to come and visit us and have a look around. Head to our website, v8sleuth.com.au, click on the bookshop tab and go shopping. It would be great to have you part of the team and part of our family at V8 Sleuth. Uh, thanks for your feedback too on the podcast episodes. We've had some great ones this year. Ryan's story's been heavily popular. David Reynolds was a big one. Larry Perkins was fantastic. Plenty of great feedback for Nick Perkat's pod and Greg Rust as well. We've got plenty of ideas ahead coming up with more people to chat to. We've got some classic car episodes, some question and answer sessions as well. There's still a lot to come. So make sure you tell your mates, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a thing on all the places that you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on socials too. Sign up for our V8 Sleuth newsletter, but you can follow us, of course, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're very, very busy and active on those platforms. Uh, that is the place to keep abreast of all the things that we're up to in this mad, crazy world of motorsport that we're involved in. Again, thanks for listening to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. We'll see you next time with another edition. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.